rising. We have a dank show for you today. I guess the producers of the show really wanted to see if I would actually read the word dank on screen, Ron Burgundy style. And there we go. I did. I didn't have a better adjective to insert today. Dank is good. <laughs> Brianna, before we get into today's show, I have a pressing question for you. Spoiler warning for the most popular show on TV currently. Why didn't Princess Rini just end the whole thing with Dracarys at the end of the most recent Excellent episode? question. It was weak sauce. I am rooting for her overall. Yeah. I think the, the explanation that the show creators gave in the after show conversation was that as a mother, she looked into the oh, eyes of please. another mother and couldn't do it. And, you know, I think that's a ridiculous excuse. I, I thought it was more maybe she's still kind of neutral. She's like, look, I am, you're not ordering me around. I am not joining you people. Work this stuff out on your own. I'm out of here. <laughs> look, sometimes it's the case when you're confronted with a really serious decision that you know is going to have really serious outcomes, even if it could be very good outcomes, a lot of people are just too afraid to pull the trigger. And I, yeah. I attributed it to that, that she needs more of an excuse to do a mass murder with her dragon. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we're going we're gonna to discuss uh, House of the Dragon at greater length, I think, uh, next week. But what is going on today in the, in the news world? In the, in the real world today, Hill Finance reporter Sylvan Lane will break down how dark the country's economic outlook actually is and if it should set off alarm bells for Democrats ahead of November. Then English language editor for Haiti Liberté, Kim Ives, will help us dissect the latest conflicts in the country and how the U.S. is weighing intervention. But first, we want to bring you some updates on the Nord Stream explosions that have become a boiling point in the Ukraine war. Well, that's right. Uh, that's right. Reuters is reporting that after a preliminary investigation, the Danish police have found the cause of the damages of the two Nord Stream gas pipelines in the Danish part of the Baltic Sea to be from powerful explosions. The Danish findings are similar to what a recent Swedish investigation found. Now, as you can see here, video of the damaged pipelines shot by an underwater drone operated by Swedish newspaper Expressen reveals some of the destruction, including 50 meters missing from the Nord Stream 1 pipeline. The outlet said these were the first images released of the pipeline, but Reuters could not independently verify that the images published by the newspaper were of Nord Stream 1. So obviously take this with a grain of salt. Mm. The Kremlin responded to the findings of the investigation on Tuesday, saying the probe was a setup to falsely blame Russia and that it based its conclusions on, quote, elementary logic. This is also according to Reuters. World leaders, including President Biden, have denounced the explosions as an act of sabotage. Additional investigations are expected into, September 20, into the September 26 ruptures that occurred in Denmark's exclusive economic zone. Those will be managed jointly by Copenhagen mm -hmm. police and the country's security and intelligence service. So is... Russia, obviously, we, you know, we have a dispute about who necessarily did this. Is Russia trying to say that it wasn't even what they're saying, the investigation into whether it was explosions is not? Yeah. I, I don't know about that, right? <laughs> yeah. It, it was exploded. It, that seems to be <laughs> the, pretty the, the, the Swedes agree. Yeah. <laughs> like, not, all, all the Scandinavians <laughs> seem to be of one accord on this one. <laughs> and again, we're, we have to wait to see confirmation about whether those pictures are what they show, but they do seem to show a large hole the likes of which you would expect from sabotage as opposed to a leak uh, of something or something of that nature. So yeah, it maybe they preemptively 
you know, were trying to cast aspersions about an investigation that they thought they might be biased. They had their press release about this <laughs> right. investigation ready to go. This is all lies. Right. This is all uh, imperialist Western propaganda. And then it just said, well, it was exploded. Right. Okay, well, that's actually fine. Right. Well, part of, I think, what's so interesting <laughs> here is, as well is that no one's offered kind of an alternative argument no. for what has happened here. So part of this report was that, um, you know, there had been uh, seismic activity observed in the area you know, over the course of time, but all the investigations also show that this is not that. Like, this is, you know, there's no evidence that this was actually caused by those kind of activities. So there really is just kind of this void of what in the alternative happened here. So it does feel like we're definitely playing a game of who done it, not what happened. Yeah, yeah, we're def exactly a game of who done it. So the you know the major theories being Russia or the United States. Frankly, um, we have denied all responsibility. That was pretty strong commentary from the Biden administration. I, look, acknowledge that. We have done uh, covert, surreptitious, black ops type things in various countries and to other governments. I still think it would be kind of outside the new normal for, I know, I know, I see you looking at me, for, <laughs> for Biden to authorize this attack and then just like lie about what, ha wouldn't, wouldn't they just not say anything? Well, I mean, they ostensibly have. I mean, look, the narrative for why the United States would have an incentive to do this is obvious and clear. I see why the United and, States would and, have an incentive to do it. Yes. We're, we've all talked about it. Yes. Russia has talked about it. We all know what that narrative is. The narrative thread for why Russia would do this comes down to... Well, it, no, I, no, I don't agree with that. To, uh, well, one is what, exactly what they're doing, to blame the U.S., yeah, it's like a, it's like a, a, yeah. a, a double, like a, yeah. what do you call it? You know, a, a false, false, false yeah. flag. Yeah. That doesn't make, I'm sorry, that yeah. doesn't, that doesn't make as much sense. And, well, and the United punish, isn't even really selling it in that way. Well, and to punish, uh, to punish European um, uh, powers that are, you know, reliant on this energy source. For on Russia's energy source? Yeah. yeah. That they get money for? That, that they profit from, yeah. that gives them leverage over the entire continent as they're heading into winter, and that is their leverage Look, it's a self, It's a, a self-destructive thing to do, but so is invading Ukraine. So is, I mean, it, Putin is, is making short-sighted, short-term destructive decisions in a desperate bid to hold on to political power. I, if, if, that, if that gels for you, there are clear strategic advantages, and, and this is not yeah. a moral statement or a statement of what Russia should be doing, but there are clear strategic advantages to uh, taking over territory in, in Ukraine. There are clear strategic advantages to not wanting NATO to expand. There are clear strategic geopolitical reasons why Russia is motivated to do what it does. Well, and this idea that, that Putin is a madman who's acting kind of on no, these like detours, I think does is it's used in service of, of, of making the American public not demand a substantive explanation for what's going on. But we absolutely should get a substantive explanation for what's going on. And to, again, just to be clear, it could be the U.S. I absolutely acknowledge that. I don't think Putin is a uniquely insane or mad kind of political actor. But I also kind of reject, there's a certain, and, I'm not, and I don't think you're guilty of this, but there's a certain strain of argumentation on the kind of coming from non-interventionist left and right who act, that, act as if, you know, the U.S. has uniquely foolish or malicious no, rulers and that all. other countries don't. I think everyone, everyone's political leaders 
can and often do make really bad blunders when it comes to policy, especially when it comes to foreign policy. They don't really know what they're doing. So we can do that. We have done that. Our Middle Eastern blunders are significant. In the same way we can do that, a leader like Putin or a leader like Xi Jinping or like anyone can make serious strategic blunders. And I would argue that the, the invasion of Ukraine has gone very bad for them, obviously, militarily. Holding, you're right. You know, gaining more territory is nice in a sort of, you know, old uh, medieval European kind of sense. But if the goal was to was to have some kind of reaction against the expansion of NATO, I mean, that's Europe is is more pulling together around the idea of NATO than they were before. They, right. I mean, we we shouldn't get into this whole thing now here in A Block, but. There was there energy resources found in Ukraine. There are gas lines that are going through Ukraine. There are it's the breadbasket of Europe. Yeah. There's you know access um, to the sea. I mean, there's a lot of things that are going on. Not to mention the fact that there's a Russian-speaking population. There's been a civil war that's been going ongoing for years. You know, there are a lot of reasons that provide motivation mm -hmm. and that make it make make sense, as it were. That again, this is not a moral argument mm -hmm. here or justification. But there are there's a rationale here that people, very early observers of this conflict, John Mersheimer's famous talk from years ago that got resurfaced here. The the line is that the, the Russia's geopolitical investment in that region is so far outstripping what the United States' geopolitical investment is that it makes it a really unequally yoked conflict for that reason, and that Russia is going to be willing to go a lot farther because of it. And that that doesn't make any sense. And without understanding what the, those underlying yeah. concerns or their own underlying attachment to the region is, you are going to make some risky bets about when they're going to back down. Sure. And so that's that's sure. why I think it's important just sure. to connect that through line. Well, yeah, no, I agree. Yeah, with, uh, yeah I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't actually don't think that contradicts what I was saying. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Well, Brianna, I hope you're ready to talk Kanye West. Uh, you missed out on a lot of Kanye yesterday, yeah, but I'll sad. have some coming up for you on my radar up next. All right, Robbie, what's on your radar today? Well, yesterday it was reported that Ye, the rapper formerly known as Kanye West, intends to purchase Parler, which is an alternative social media platform that purports to put free speech above all else. Kanye is in need of just such a platform after being kicked off Twitter and Instagram after he made anti-Semitic comments. He tweeted he was going to go to Death Con 3 on Jewish people and suggested the Jews were participating in a vast conspiracy to silence him. His remarks made matters uncomfortable for some conservatives who have recently adopted Kanye as one of their own, following remarks he has made to conservative media, including an interview with Fox News' Tucker Carlson, in which he appeared to agree with some conservative talking points, like the morality of abortion. Many conservative figures have subsequently denounced him for making anti-Semitic comments, though Candace Owens, an influential right-wing media figure affiliated with Ben Shapiro and The Daily Wire, has steadfastly defended Kanye. Watch this. That was the tweet, and people subsequently demanded that the tweet be taken down for anti-Semitism. Now, if you are an honest person, you did not think this tweet was anti-Semitic. You did not think that he wrote this tweet because he hates or wants to genocide Jewish people. This does not represent the beginning of the Holocaust. That's if you're an honest person, you'll meet that. You, you will admit that. So that's important context because Candace Owens' husband, George Farmer, is the CEO of Parler. Seriously. Farmer is ecstatic about his company's new ownership, I would believe. In a statement, he said, Ye is making a groundbreaking move into the free speech media space. We'll never have to fear being removed from social media again. Once again, Ye proves that he is one step ahead of the legacy media narrative. 
So the conservative commentator Dave Rubin, who's active on the YouTube competitor Rumble, thinks Ye might have even been trying to get himself banned from Twitter and other social media sites because it helps put a cherry on top of this deal with Candace Owens' husband. Rubin notes that he's totally supportive of alternative platforms, but Kanye is, quote, just bananas. So I don't always agree with Dave Rubin, but on this subject, yeah, I strongly agree. Alternative platforms are good and important, especially because the main platforms, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, have frequently proven deficient when it comes to free speech and have chosen to censor and silence conservative libertarian, contrarian, even leftist voices in favor of blandly reinforcing whatever mainstream consensus the media prefers. It's not always big tech's fault, of course. Major companies have the Biden administration breathing down their neck frequently putting pressure on them to make terrible speech-related decisions on subjects like COVID, Hunter Biden, and so much else. But big tech has proven itself remarkably susceptible to soft pressure campaigns from government actors, and alternative sites who tell the government to take a hike would be welcome disruptors in this space. But to become serious competitors, these upstarts need to practice basic, professional business practices. And that's a bar that Parler has frequently failed to clear. In fact, the site let me down yesterday. After the Kanye news became public, Parler's comms team sent an email about it to interested members of the media, VIPs, and sympathetic voices. Quote, we appreciate all your support and partnership in the fight for free speech, and we look forward to your involvement in this monumental new chapter, it read. Here's the problem. Parler's comms team failed to use blind carbon copy, the email function in which you hide the other email addresses so that people receiving the email can't spam each other. I know they failed because I was one of those email addresses and I was on a chain of emails about it. Now this is very, very basic professional behavior and critically an important practice for organizations that purport to value the privacy of their users. Parler totally failed. I can see all the email addresses of various persons it tried to contact. Those, of course, raise questions about whether Parler can be trusted with users' personal information. A scary and relevant proposition because at one point, the site was requiring users to submit their social security numbers in order to sign up. Insane. In a statement to me, Parler acknowledged the mistake and apologized. In the excitement, we inadvertently included your email address in the CC field instead of the BCC field. To say we're highly embarrassed is an understatement. It saddens us that one or more of the email recipients would opt to share screenshots of the mistake on social media. We offer our greatest apologies. We value all of our VIPs. And as a platform that highly esteems privacy, we are truly sorry. We appreciate your ongoing support and would never deliberately make such a mistake. And we have immediately taken measures to ensure this never happens again. I better not. Here's the bottom line, though. Conservatives, libertarians, contrarians are not wrong to seek alternative platforms that offer actual protection for free speech and for independent thought. If major tech companies are moving in lockstep with the mainstream media and the federal government, the effort to foster actual competition more important than ever. We also need to demand more from alternatives, including very basic stability, privacy, and competence. Is that why Kanye West is offering Parler? Somehow, I doubt it. Yeah. So, <laughs> Were you on this, these email threads? I was not. Ryan Grimm was, and, uh, and he <laughs> joked that well, you've all been involuntarily signed up for my newsletter. And he was joking, but I did get signed up for, there was someone on that list who I do not like, and I've never received an email from them, and sure enough, like five seconds later, I, was started, I started getting their newsletter. I yeah. unsubscribed. I despise this person. <laughs> so, so look, a, apart from those kind of privacy concerns, I do think that this this is a thing that a lot of these new companies have to face. 
there is a lot of legitimate criticism of the kind of established social media companies. I have joined it. It is true. It is also the case that sometimes their failures are because there's a big administrative lift to doing what they do with millions, sometimes billions of users having to regulate what's going on there in a way that makes it actually a place that people want to be and to use without seeming like you've done these overreaches. And I think that the most kind of measured substantive critiques of a lot of these platforms acknowledges that some kind of regulation is necessary so it's not just a porn farm, uh, but the, that there, there needs to be more transparency and consistency about how these regulatory decisions get made. I think that's, that's the fundamental thing. And when you look to these new sites, what you're seeing is that there's like nothing. Yeah. It's a wild, wild west and it's a little bit of a be careful what you wish for situation. The other part of this that is exposed, and I'm, I'm hesitant to use the word grift, but this this implication from Dave Rubin that maybe um, Kanye was intentionally trying to get himself booted off the app because it's a good look for Parler to be able to say, I was canceled, but look, Parler allows me to be here. There was a similar argument, similar thing that was maybe happening with Kanye West who got um, uh, JP Morgan into their banking right. relationship with Kanye. Right. And uh, Candace Owens is also attached to this glorified, this um conservative bank that's supposed to be an anti-woke bank. And that bank has also had these kinds of problems where they haven't had the requisite security to protect people's financial information. And it's been tumbling and falling because of those kinds of reasons. And it's just to show like wokeness is not an organizing principle in and of itself or anti-wokeness is not yeah. an organizing yeah. principle yeah. in and of itself. Yeah. There's got to be a little bit more there. No, 100%. And I, I can point to things that are, are doing a good job of both having principles that I like. So Substack is a great yeah. example of a platform that has yeah. been clear about its principles. And, and I, those principles are, I, I am aligned with them. But also it seems to be, I mean, obviously I don't know intricately, it's, it's all of its workings, but it seems to be a very competent, bold company yeah. that is making good decisions. Maybe that's true of Rumble. I, I know Rumble less well, but I, I, again, I like what they're trying to do and it seems to be going well. So, so there are positive examples in this space, certainly. Um, I don't know that Parler's one of them. <laughs> I don't know that Kanye West is going to improve it. These are some fundamental issues. And conservatives, you know, who are very, again, right, as you, agree, people who rightly fired up about some of these bad decisions, yes, I so agree. Anti-wokeness, not an organizing principle. You need basic competence. You need your thing to not <laughs> suck. It can be, it can be anti-woke and also not suck. Please. Yeah, I believe. I believe. <laughs> and we do need we do need these kinds of yeah. platforms, so I really hope people uh, figure this kind of a thing out. I'm not sure the parlor is it. We'll have more rising for you right after this. The Biden administration has officially launched the student loan forgiveness application. Individuals with student loans who made less than $125,000 a year in 2020 or 2021 can apply for up to $10,000 of debt relief or as much as $20,000 for eligible borrowers who were also Pell Grant recipients. Let's hear what President Biden had to say in his remarks on the loan relief program yesterday. Today marks a big step among others that my administration is taking to make education a ticket to the middle class that folks can actually afford. My commitment was if elected president, I was going to make government work to deliver for the people. This, this rollout keeps that commitment. Just as I'm keeping my commitment to relieve student debt as borrowers recover from this economic crisis caused by the once-in-a-lifetime pandemic. 
While the debt relief plan is moving ahead, at least five conservative lawsuits have been filed that could pose a challenge if they are successful. According to Yahoo News, borrowers are waiting for a decision from a federal judge who heard six Republican-led states last week that claim debt relief will harm their state's tax revenue. President Biden defended his student debt relief plan from, from Republicans in his remarks yesterday. Republican members of Congress and Republican governors are trying to do everything they can to deny this relief, even to their own constituents. As soon as I announced my administration's student debt plan, they started attacking it, saying all kinds of things. Their outrage is wrong and it's hypocritical. I will never apologize for helping working Americans and middle class people as they recover from the pandemic, especially not the same Republicans who voted for a $2 trillion tax cut in the last administration, mainly benefited the wealthiest Americans and the largest corporations and didn't pay for a penny of it, racked up a deficit. I don't want to hear from Republican officials again who heard who had hundreds of thousands of dollars, even millions of dollars in pandemic relief loans, the PPP loans but who now attack the working middle-class Americans for getting relief. So Biden hitting that PPP messaging that was so effective for him back in August really hard again. I think it's important just off the top to note that this application was just in beta mode until yesterday. And even then, 8 million people immediately signed up for it. Only about 43 million are eligible total. So that was a huge chunk of folks who immediately went and successfully used the website without having any of those problems that existed with the ACA website. And for folks who might be hesitating who think it might be something that to sit down and fill out like those horrible FAFSA forms we had to fill out on our way to college. It's something that takes less than a minute to do. It's basically name, social security number, um, and the ticking a box that says I made less than this amount in 2020 or 2021, and you're off to the races. Yeah, I'm glad the government finally figured out how to make a website. <laughs> uh, wow, they uh, mastered that skill in the year 2022. Um, <laughs> so there are several lawsuits. Yeah. I, you know, I talked about one of them last week, and then I, or two weeks ago maybe, and then and that one was ultimately uh, the judge didn't buy that one. I think in part because then the Biden administration just said, well, wait, this is all moot because we're we're not this isn't going to apply to there. You don't have to take. Yeah, it. you can opt out. Yes. And to be clear, I spoke to a couple of student um, debt experts from the Debt Collective, which is you know the biggest debtors union in the country and has been really pushing for a lot of this stuff for an episode that will be coming out on my podcast on Thursday. Uh, and what they were saying is that there was never an explicit commitment to there not being an opt out. There was kind of this presumption that you couldn't opt out. And so the lawsuit was really just premature in that way. Other lawsuits have struggled to ha find um, to resolve the standing, standing issue. Yeah. Well, and that's what this lawsuit was trying to do. Well. Yeah. It was, they're all trying to find creative ways to resolve um, the standing issue. But look, I, I think. You're very supportive of this policy. The fact that this, you know, is being done via executive order, rather than there's no, this is not legislation was not crafted and was not debated and discussed and put together that you know explains exactly what's being done. It's it's kind of being made up on the fly. It's just being declared, which is what's going to open it up to these challenges. They go, well, okay, wait, now it's voluntary. You don't have to do it anymore. So that lawsuit is thrown out. 
Well, to be clear, I mean, there is legislation. There's a legislative hook for the executive authority. You know, president can't just move well, a magic wand and do whatever they want. Uh, so there's it's two, a weak legislative hook. Well, there's but. two legislative hooks that have been put out there. I was critical in a radar before about the emphasis on the HEROES Act, which was a post-9-11 emergency act that was geared toward victims of 9-11 first responders, et cetera, having their student loans postponed in the context of that crisis. Um, but again, when I spoke to the Astra Taylor and Sparky Abraham uh, for this upcoming episode, they made it clear that they're, they're all of the, in all of these lawsuits, the government has been drawing on both the authority of the HEROES Act and the 1965 Higher Education Act um, dually, which I think will cut off a lot of the other criticisms that have been raised uh, in this Jed Sugarman article. He's a uh, Fordham Law Professor and some other sources right off at the pass. So, but they, but they are encouraging folks to go ahead and apply, uh, apply because to the extent that there is any kind of successful legal action that causes any kind of injunction or something like that down the, the road, the fact that people having already been um, reimbursed will make it very difficult for them to claw back. That was going to be my yeah. That was going to be my question to you. You're the attorney. If so much of the money is already paid out, I, I can't imagine that gets taken away or paid back, even if there would be a successful law. I mean, the, the, that seems very prohibitively difficult to convince some kind of judge, or a judge is going to be less willing to hear an argument that if, if the implication is going to be that that money gets right. back. I, can't imagine that happening. Right. Maybe they stop right. the program and no more people get money. And this, this is why I think there's a lot of neoliberal, you know, corporate opposition to certain kind of social welfare programs coming into effect because folks know that once they start getting something, it's hard to, to, to curb it back. That's why you have bipartisan support of programs like Social Security and why I think conservatives in both parties are very weary of demonstrating in this moment that the government can actually help people in these very straightforward ways. So they are encouraging folks. There, there's a deadline, a final deadline for the end of next year. But if you want to get your loans um, forgiven before repayments start on January 1st, there is an earlier deadline, I think, of November 15th to, to fill out the form by. And again, the, fill, the form is very, very easy to fill out. I would, in my ideal world, well, in my ideal world, we would just not do this, but in my other ideal world, uh, the standing issue should be, I know, and I know this is wrong, I know the Supreme <laughs> Court does not allow this, but the standing issue should be resolved by it's your it's your tax dollars, so anyone can be able to sue. But I know this is very much not yeah, something they well, support. Well, that would that heard, would mean that agreed. standing as a concept would be completely gone. Yes, I would because I would be able to sue over every war. I'd be able to sue over Wouldn't that be great? legislation. Well, no, not necessarily. Why are we harmed by being able to sue over every war? I mean, the idea is that we have a legislative. Pro First of all, they're not yeah. supposed to be going to war already without congressional consent. So there's a lot of problems That's with executive right. that doesn't authority stop them. that have been, to do more. been extended. Um, but generally speaking, you know, the, our legal system would have to be dramatically redesigned. I, hey, I, I think it needs to be dramatically redesigned anyway. Um, but I really, I really do think that people should consider what this means. I think the PPP point stands. The government had no issue doing what it frequently does, which is to give out sums of corporate welfare to elites constantly. This is one instance where, to be clear, uh, 43 million borrowers are eligible, 20 million under this program, which is not going far enough, but 20 million will have their debt erased entirely. This is a huge win ostensibly for the Biden administration. We'll see if it makes an effect, has an effect in places like Georgia. On, on voters. On, vo on, on yeah. voters, yeah. Well, we'll see. Yeah. More rising after this. Stay tuned. New Bloomberg economic model projections are predicting a recession is certain in the next 12 months. 
The latest models show a 12-month estimate of a downturn by October 2023 hitting 100%, up from 65% for the comparable period in the previous update. This directly contradicts President Biden's statement that the U.S. will not face a recession and any downturn would be, quote, very slight. Finance reporter at The Hill, Sylvan Lane, joins us now to expand on this. Welcome, Sylvan. Thanks for having me. So what um, economic signs are you seeing that recession is now moving into the all but certain kind of category? Certainly. So it seems a little bit weird to be talking about recession in an economy where we've added 420,000 jobs on average per month. And the unemployment rate is still really low at 3.5 percent. But the problem is that inflation has been getting higher and it's continuing to run hot. And it's been like this for more than a year. That means the Federal Reserve is under pressure to keep raising interest rates. And as those interest rates get higher, the economy will slow unemployment will increase. Inflation may come down, but it may be at the cost of starting a recession. So it sounds like what you're saying then, that the recession is, the, is being driven by the choice to raise interest, interest rates in order to, to bring down uh, inflation. But this is a kind of a cyclical pattern that some people, especially on the left, have been challenging. The idea that that is the, the Fed, all, when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail, is using raising interest rates instead of addressing some of the underlying causes of inflation. Does that, does that resonate with you at all? Are there any other approaches that could be taken other than kind of purposefully creating an economic downturn that's going to disproportionately hurt the poorest and working, most working class people in the country? So you're definitely right to point out that a lot of what's causing inflation, or at least a decent amount of it, is beyond the Fed's control. The Fed can raise and lower interest rates along with a few other tools it has to basically make money harder to get and more expensive to borrow. But that only affects some causes of inflation. Now, the issue is the Fed is under a legal mandate from Congress and the president to do whatever it can to bring inflation down. But because it can't touch certain aspects of inflation, all it can really do is keep raising interest rates on its own until it gets to a point where they think inflation is on its way down. The other side of it, when it comes to dealing with supply-related issues, getting more workers back into the workforce, dealing with some of the uh, corporate decision-making that may be causing prices to go higher, all of that stuff is beyond the Federal Reserve's control. But the Fed is still bound by their legal mandate to keep prices stable. So they're in the spot where they can either you know, where they feel like they can either drive the economy into a slowdown to bring inflation down or ignore what their job is and allow prices to keep rising higher. And then we end up by, you know, their argument in a much worse situation than if they didn't raise interest rates at all. Hmm. Well, home sellers are dropping their asking prices at record rates as mortgage rates surge. According to Redfin, about 7.9 percent of home listings reported price drops during the four-week period that ended October 9th. So this is one aspect of all this that, I, I don't know, this would come as relief perhaps to, to buyers. We talk a lot about the out-of-control, um, ever-increasing housing prices, uh, making it hard for first-time home buyers, hard for a lot of people. It's worse in some areas of the country than others. Um, I, this is bad news, you know, if you, if you own a house currently, but you, you would still expect in the long run some of that to uh, to that value to come back. So how does you know, how does a drop in housing prices 
you know, affect kind of the economic situation? Because I could actually see how that that would be good for some people. Yeah, no. So basically, when the Fed raises interest rates, it makes mortgage payments more expensive because mortgage rates move uh, basically in in lockstep almost with when the Federal Reserve raises its baseline interest rate range. Now, that's a really complicated process that I could spend hours getting into. But the bottom line is when the Fed raises rates, it makes mortgages a lot more expensive. So to compensate, people who are selling houses are going to lower their housing prices. Now, the Fed hopes that all of this will lower inflation, not just because houses are getting less expensive, but because when people buy houses, they also buy a lot of stuff to go in that house and a lot of services to put things in that house. Movers, renovators, furniture, all of that stuff. The Fed is hoping that fewer home sales and home purchases means fewer mo- or less money going into the economy, which should hopefully flip bring inflation down. Now, the problem is housing prices are still really high by historic standards. Mortgage rates are high, too. And the fact that so many people can't afford to buy houses now is pushing more people into apartments where they're staying longer and landlords are jacking up the rents there. So the Fed is at the beginning of a process that it hopes will reduce inflation. But there's a lot of things that are kind of beyond its control that might get in the way of that, too. So we've seen in the UK, for example, uh, a choice to cap energy prices. Conversations about price caps on goods in the United States are treated very negatively and aren't really in the realm of a political discourse and, and haven't been since the 1970s when Nixon implemented price caps that were actually very popular. I, I find myself bringing this up because it does seem like the approach, which is to create a recession that, again, is going to disproportionately affect the poorest people in the country, a choice made by people who are kind of professional uh, bad decision makers, in my view, like Larry Summers, does seem to be a response that is driven by a lack of imagination or perhaps political courage to take other kinds of approaches. Is it really true that the only thing to do in this moment is to raise uh, interest rates? Is there not another way to address the fundamental issue, which in many contexts seems to be the supply issue. No, certainly. I mean, so raising interest rates is not the only thing that can be done. It's one of the only things the Federal Reserve can do. But to understand why there hasn't been more collaboration, we have to get back to what President Biden said earlier this year when he launched his grand plan to fight inflation. For him, the number one pillar of that plan was letting the Fed do whatever it felt it needed to do to fight inflation. Now, Biden was a senator in the 70s when inflation was at double-digit levels, largely because several presidents over time and, and Fed chairmen who didn't have the courage to do so allowed it to run up instead of raising interest rates at a time where it really made sense to do that. Biden really wants to avoid a situation that faced Jimmy Carter and the one that uh, you know ended up causing a recession during Ronald Reagan's first term which is putting the Fed in a position where it needs to jack up interest rates like crazy. So that's where Biden is coming from here. The problem is he and the Democrats in Congress have tried to do things, uh, you know, with the Inflation Reduction Act, releasing more oil reserves to try to, um, you know, lower the inflationary pressure. But as you mentioned, price caps have a very negative political legacy. Uh, You know, people think of the long line spanning from gas stations, all of the stuff that kind of defined Carter's presidency and led to his downfall in that election, Biden is probably looking at a lot of these similar political currents and wants to make sure he's not repeating the same mistakes 
that cost his party when he started his, his senatorial career, you know, almost 40 years ago. Well, Sylvan Lane, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. We'll have more Rising for you right after this. Former socialite Ghislaine Maxwell, who was convicted for sex trafficking, gave her first interview from prison. She expressed sympathy for her friend Prince Andrew. According to the U.S. Sun, she said, quote, I feel so bad for him. I follow what is happening to him. I consider him a dear friend. I care about him. Mm. Maxwell is serving 20 years for sex trafficking teenage girls, allegedly helping convicted sex offender Jeffrey Epstein in his sex ring. Audio from a portion of Maxwell's interview with CBS's Daphne Barak is available. Let's listen to some of that. What, do you think you made any mistake or, or just it's just a very bad luck? If you go back, if you look back, where do you think you should have done something different? Meeting uh, Epstein was the greatest mistake of my life. And obviously, if I could go back today, um, I would avoid meeting him. Um, and I would say that that would be the greatest mistake I've ever made, and I would make different choices where I would work, obviously. I mean, it is interesting to hear her express remorse about meeting Epstein, but to still be kind of vocally supportive of Prince Andrew, regardless of what the implications of that relationship are. Yeah, I mean, if I'm Prince Andrew, I probably don't, want her to say that I want her to say who's that I don't know who that is I've never well he's some royal or something because the suggestion that she cares deeply about him that that suggests that they were actually quite close and that he was potentially or possibly involved in what was going on there um so or at very least aware I mean, or aware, right? You know, right. And and I mean, those are the questions we have. How aware were people? What did they know? What was going on? How well was this being being hidden? It was so pervasive and so abusive over such a long period of time that it begins to strain credulity that that there was not knowledge of this kind of stuff. Yeah, and this is one of the lessons that we learned from the whole, you know, Weinstein. Uh, scandal was that, that it was an all open Hollywood, secret. Every, every single person. Right. And, and they it joked did. about it on Family Guy like five times. Right. And there were plenty of people across the ideological spectrum. This wasn't a political issue. This wasn't, it was just, it was a power issue. And it was a real story about how people were willing to look away. You know, Barack Obama sent his, his daughter to, to um, intern for Weinstein with all of these things being an open, an open secret. I mean, people, people just continued to engage. Yeah. I think maybe in our new, like, hyper-partisan reality, it's possible that um, some conservative outlet would have <laughs> would have gone after this sexual predator Hillary Clinton BFF much sooner. Oh, what a um, that's the, that's the one. Uh, maybe that's the one good thing about our uh, the hell we're living in now of of just mutual distrust and dislike across the political spectrum is that you get some whistleblowers. You, you can't get away with it. bad faith whistleblowers that accidentally do the right thing. Yeah. Um, Back to Epstein, uh, you know, it came up when we interviewed uh, Ryan Grimm and Emily Chichinsky and I um, interviewed, um, uh, blanking on his name, um, 
Dershowitz, yeah. <laughs> attorney for Epstein, mm -hmm. and uh, and you know we asked him some pointed questions mm -hmm. about how much he knew, and because it was he had this long relationship as an attorney, and he he very defiantly said, um, you know the the. Hitler, Satan, the, they deserve representation. Mm -hmm. um, he has no qualms about offering Epstein the best legal advice he was entitled to. And, you know, as a due process advocate, sure, I, I think that's fair. Uh, he also said that, you know, he visited the various residences of Jeffrey Epstein, that there, were, that there was massaging being done, although by professional massage people, it was It's It's, it's so unhinged. I'm um, sorry, like... What world do these know. people live in where you we're all just inviting our friends over to our houses for massages after we've yeah. been convicted in the first instance in yeah. the 90s or the early 2000s or late 90s right. of one instant one Yeah, one I, I don't know if, if I don't believe he said that it was after the conviction the uh, the massages he got at the residence. I, I I can't recall. I think it was not after. He, you know, he still had communication with Epstein after the conviction, and he, he spoke about how easy... That was the thing in that interview that stood out most to me, was how easy it was for Jeffrey Epstein to get on the phone with very rich and very powerful people. It, it, easy. Bill Clinton. He called. Bill Clinton was going to answer. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, again, that's going way back. That's going back before, uh, before some of the, uh, before the conviction. Um, but he wasn't completely unpersoned after the conviction, obviously. Yeah, yeah. So, we hadn't invented the cancel culture yet, so. We hadn't. Uh, somebody, that's well, somebody I mean, deserved me, to be canceled. Let me ask you this. I mean, there's been a lot of conversation about the Me Too movement as a kind of, there's been these retrospectives, you know, was it good? Was it bad? Did it go too far? When you look back at how Epstein was thought of in the first part of this century versus now and what he was able to get away with versus now and how now there's kind of an open, at very least an open conversation about Prince Andrew, people holding up signs. Obviously, there was that protester at the Queen's funeral that we talked about who was, you know, you know, mm -hmm. protesting the presence of Prince Andrew at the at the funeral. You know, at the end of the day, even if there have been some overreaches, is that a, a victory of the Me Too movement that people feel less comfortable, perhaps, living in this Dershowitz world where you can casually allude to the massages that you got at Jeffrey Epstein's house? Well, certainly it's a good thing when powerful people who did absolutely abhorrent things, uh, abusive things, don't get away with it eventually. And it, yes, it's, it's, we've made tremendous progress. It's good that it is harder to get away with sexual assault, sexual abuse. Um, certainly, that would not change my view that there were overreaches in the Me Too movement. Um, uh, you know, not the things we're talking about, but, um, but also, well, two issues. One is kind of more ordinary people facing what I would just describe as sexual misconduct disputes, where it is not clear exactly what happened. I mean, mm -hmm. this is a situation that happens on college campuses a mm -hmm. lot. Um, among, among young people, among um, high school students, sexting kind of thing. There's a lot, of, um, a lot of ordinary young adult behavior that is not ideal. Um, it just maybe deserves some kind of private condemnation or some kind of remedy, but shouldn't have you unpersoned for the rest of your life. And then also cases that do involve uh, uh, more notable public people 
where it is ambiguous because we're litigating things from a long time ago where there isn't a lot of evidence. I mean, I put the Kavanaugh one in this category. Um, I think what happened to Aziz Ansari was mm-hmm. horrifying and unfair. Mm-hmm. And as, as, as that was the jump the shark. One. That was the jump the shark one. So I, I still think those things um, were some of them very bad, some of them problematic, ambiguous, whatever. Um, but no, I, I certainly wouldn't write off the entire Me Too movement. Yeah, I do think there's a, there's a big distinction between the kinds of the instances that fall short of any criminal liability yeah. and the criminal cases. So yeah. obviously this is one where Maxwell will be in jail for 20 years. And what is, I think, interesting about this interview is that despite the kind of guilt that at least under the, our legal system now applies, there's still this almost casual willingness to pull people into that orbit. And it is it is interesting to see that um, Prince Andrew still largely mm. has escaped unscathed from all of this, but obviously we'll be continuing to follow updates. Escaped, uh, escaped unscathed and has inherited some corgis, I believe. Is right? that is where it? the corgis went? My understanding is that he... Okay, let's... It's not rap before we know the fate of the corgis. I think the corgis are the, going the to Queen's, Prince Andrew. The Queen's famous. That's his only. Uh, that's his only. Uh, uh, Googling. I'm just getting images. Why am I just getting images? Because <laughs> people love to just look at a yes, little short Prince Andrew dog. to care for Queen's beloved corgis. Do we think that that was a, a blessing or a curse? <laughs> I, don't I don't know. Right. I took my uh, I took my dogs with me on some travel. By the way, over the weekend oh I was at a God. conference in Miami, and uh, I brought the pups along. Did fantastic in the airport. Fantastic on the plane. Fantastic at the hotel. So, so look, very very proud of me. Maybe it was a gift. Maybe the, the queen was saying, "Here's some dogs that'll help to rehab- rehabilitate your public in- uh, image on my way out." Yeah. Oh well, well, we'll definitely have more rising for you coming up next. Senator Bernie Sanders is calling on Democrats to have the guts to court supporters of former President Donald Trump. The former presidential candidate made those statements Sunday on Meet the Press. He told Chuck Todd that people on top are doing incredibly well, but the working class is struggling. Democrats should talk about the economy. I think they should contrast their views with the Republican positions. I believe, and most Democrats believe, that at a time when half our people live in paycheck to paycheck, we should raise the minimum wage to a living wage. No Republicans support that. I think we should make it easier for workers to join unions. Republicans don't support that. I believe that when you have billionaires not paying a nickel in some cases in federal income taxes, yeah, we should demand that the rich and large corporations start paying their fair share. Now, what Republicans are saying, Chuck, which is quite amazing to me, is that in the midst of these difficult economic times for seniors and for other people, you know what they say? We got to cut Social Security. We got to cut Medicare. We got to cut Medicaid. I think that that is grotesque. And I think Democrats have got to hold them accountable for those reactionary positions. Well, the senator acknowledged that while some right-leaning voters are, in fact, unreachable, many working-class Americans backed President Trump because of their frustration with the economy. And according to a poll by Fox News, a majority of Americans want the government to, quote, lend me a hand. That's up 10 points in a year and up 19 points among Republicans. Uh, so I think Bernie is absolutely correct. And I mean, the, the numbers bear out mm-hmm. that you know, there are voters who, uh, who, who are up for grabs in the Republican coalition if you talk about economic issues with them. We all know of the 
there, there are Obama, Trump, Biden voters mm -hmm. in the in the Midwest, in places like I'm from Michigan, in places like Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, everywhere. But in particular, though, and those are important important states for the electoral college map. Uh, there are people who who liked uh, Obama and then did not feel that Hillary Clinton spoke to their needs, to mm -hmm. their economic needs. And were disappointed and by Obama's actual tenure in office as opposed yeah. to the promises he ran on. Yeah. yeah. And then there are people who I didn't like some something about Trump, pick, <laughs> pick one, and uh, tried out Biden and are still and are not happy still because the economy is not great for a lot of people. Yeah, look, Bernie is right here. He's quite obviously right. Every poll points to the fact that voters definitely are prioritizing the economy still. This is not to say, and I saw some liberals losing their minds over this, um, implying that Bernie didn't care about abortion or wasn't investment, invested in women's rights issues because he wanted the Democrats to broaden their messaging to be inclusive of abortion, mm -hmm. but not exclusively about abortion. And that's absurd. Uh, Democrats have consistently been uh, sh you know, shooting themselves in the foot by criticizing Bernie and all of the advice that he's giving that he does not have to be offering up to them as an independent senator from Vermont. And they keep losing, and then they turn around and very predict predictably will blame progressives for their losses, even though they followed a, a blue dog corporate dim handbook all the way. It's the whole idea that talking about economic anxiety is a racist dog whistle, yes. which is something many in the mainstream media sincerely believe. They believe that. They've been, they've been pushing that narrative since 2000. 2017, 2016, and it's absolutely exhausting. The, at this, uh, Democrats talk out of one side of their mouth about how black and brown people are disproportionately poor, economically disenfranchised, all of the things, and it is true. And then on the other side of their mouth, say, they say, if you talk about poverty issues, you're a problem. You know, you're a racist. If you, if you, if you, on one side of their mouth, they say. White Americans are so racist that if you describe a policy in racial terms, they're less likely to want to do it. And then if you go ahead and describe that policy not in racial terms, perhaps trying to present how it could be popular, they say, well, it's racist for you not to say specifically how this is a policy that's going to serve these historically marginalized groups. And they box themselves into a corner. There, there should be different audience, different approaches that you're able to take with different audiences. If you go to a Latino community, if you go to a women's group, if you go to a black community, obviously you should be given the, if you talk to machinists, you should be talking to the group that's in front of you. But you also have to realize that messaging is going to change when you're talking to a broader audience. And if you believe some truth about how people are less likely to think something is for them, if you describe it in too narrow a way, Obviously, it benefits you to talk broadly about the economy because that, of course, is what's hurting these um, uh, traditionally Democratic-based voters as well as voters as a whole. Right, because you need you need voters outside the coalition. I mean, the the way that some progressive, uh, mainstream Democratic liberal activists and media people and professors, etc., you know, they act like, well, they're just going to be, you get all the woke people to vote and then, and more, you know, ramp up turnout among our, you know, core socially liberal base. And that's just not enough people. It's not enough and they're people. not concentrated in the areas where it's electorally important yeah. to focus. The Rust Belt in particular, yeah. yeah. Well, former White House press secretary and now MSNBC commentator Jen Psaki recently tweeted this tidbit from a New York Times-Siena College poll. Quote, holy moly, Siena New York Times poll, more than a third of independent voters and a smaller but noteworthy contingent of Democrats said they were open to supporting candidates who reject the legitimacy of the 2020 election as they focus on economic issues. The poll also found the economy and inflation 
were top of the mind for voters ahead of November. I mean, I think that just speaks to the fact that a lot of people are not as obsessed with uh, with election um, secure election stuff, January sixth stuff, yeah. Trump stuff, as talking heads on MSNBC. I mean, think about what she's really <laughs> saying here. Holy moly! Voters care about the economy, their ability to pay their bills more than they care about the election being stolen. I mean, what, what we're really getting to is, would you disqualify a, a candidate who you otherwise thought was going to help you out economically because mm -hmm. they said the election was stolen? Now, that's a pretty privileged thing to be able to do. Exactly. Right? <laughs> to have enough. E exactly. This is not a referendum on whether yeah. or not people would prefer a candidate to be an election denier. I think a lot of people would say, all things being equal, they would prefer a candidate who was nice and right. polite and you know had hair and all of the superficial things that people like in their presidential candidates or their political candidates, generally speaking. But if given the choice, if, if the Republican Party has decided to go all in and basically allow a lot of election deniers in their midst, then a lot of conservative voters are going to be faced with this conundrum. Do they want someone who they think is going to help them better economically, which I would argue Republicans are not going to do, but that's the belief. That, that was going to help them economically, or do they want to just stay at home or vote dim because election denial? Like, that's absurd. And this is exactly why Bernie's right. You have to, at the end of the day, make the case for why your candidate is going to materially improve the lives of the people that you want to vote for them. There's no getting around that. There's no talking about uh, putting rainbow flags on banks and Ukrainian drones, flags. Don't forget about the Ukrainian forget, like, flags. <laughs> right. And obviously that's not an indictment. I think the rainbow LGBT flags are getting upstaged community. by the Ukrainian flags at this point. I, I think any... that the same vendors are making a lot of money selling yeah. both to a lot of people who should be concentrating on whether or not they can get candidates running that actually don't take corporate money, aren't able to work in the interest of the American people. Yeah. Did you see I saw bad. some dem political figure. It actually might have been a progressive one sharing some group of rainbow flags, the various for various sexual identities. But they actually left out just the gay one, the regular one. All right, no, no, I don't, should have said regular. I'm going to get in trouble. Don't you do this, too, Robbie? Like honestly, it, it's clear as day to me. It's clear as day to me what's happening. Both both parties want the conversation to be about. Culture war stuff that doesn't mean anything, and these these voters are telling something. you in these polls, yeah. it doesn't mean well, as much. Well, they care about the culture war stuff too. Well, sh according to these polls, yeah. the voters prioritize the economy. The economy. Absolutely, it's, and it's a wide open Absolutely. field because no one's really speaking to that issue. Both parties know because they're bought and sold by all of these banks and Wall Street and corporate interests. Neither of them wants to do anything on that score. You you had Larry Summers sitting here saying we're going to create a recession. We we have to we have to create unemployment. We have to drive people. like they're they're saying it out loud that their way. Their approach to fixing the economy is going to come at the expense of the broad masses of voters. And because no one is presenting any kind of alternative, they can get away with it. Because we're spending so much time worrying about people's flags in both, in both directions. In both directions. So. Well, pe people, can, people do and can care about multiple things just in the way that they... But if they're not, I, given, I think that one of those things is not, except for MSNBC viewers, one of those things is if, not really election security. If they're security. not given the, the option politically yeah. at the ballot box to vote on any of those things, then regardless of what their personal priorities are, the only sure. way that they can express their politics is via the culture wars, which I think is a loss for a right. But I just have to look at a Republican Party that has been incredibly successful in the last few years, and incredibly successful via leaning into that culture war. Look, I agree. Yeah. But the Democrats have been successful for the 20 years prior pushing similar kinds of things. And was the world better because 
you know, we had a John Stewart uh, campaign for freedom or whatever he was doing back in the early aughts. And because, you know, look, I think the world is better in terms of the we have gay marriage. For, for sanity yeah, that that is it. Know? That's that's it. Yeah. Like we were winning for a long time because we 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 won on the idea that like gay people are equal and should get married, and that was a meaningful victory. Mm-hmm. And that that stuff mattered. But the Democrats thought that they could coast on being like not vocally explicitly racist and friendly to members of the LGBT community for the rest of all time without offering anything. And now we're seeing what the consequence of that right. are. And I think the Republicans, your day is going to come too, where people get tired, people get are desperate and poor and strung out. And they're going to get tired of being offered nothing but... I hope Republican voters get tired and wake up to the grift going on on their own side. I was just seeing... Um, uh, uh, criticisms of uh, a Trump, uh, a Trump-aligned super PAC that takes donations, and uh, was saying you have to donate because you're matching funds for the Arizona race. Mm. This is, you know, Blake Masters mm-hmm. is in this pivotal. He's, he's looking a little behind, but it's a close race. You know, it's very important for conservatives donate to Blake Masters, and, and you can donate to this fund, and, and, and this pack will will you know takes half of it goes to the Trump pack, and then half and then half of it goes to Blake Masters. Is the clear implication? But if you look very closely, no, ninety percent of it goes to the Trump oh, pack, ten percent to Blake Masters. Jeez. Wake up, Republicans. Yeah. Grift. Yeah. All right, we'll have more rising right after this. Stay with us. AOC is sharing her thoughts on a confrontation she had with anti-war protesters. She posted this statement on Instagram saying, in part, they were right-wing Trumpers, not progressives, as they claimed. This time, they were parroting pro-Putin talking points. It is not anti-war to support Russia's imperialist project to invade and seize neighboring countries. The New York Congresswoman also addressed comments made about Tulsi Gabbard, saying Gabbard voted for more defense budget increases than I ever have. Look it up. Meanwhile, Tulsi Gabbard has endorsed Republican candidate Carrie Lake for governor in Arizona. She tweeted her support and highlighted that, quote, Carrie Lake isn't afraid to call out the warmongering elitist cabal of permanent Washington and the military-industrial complex. A lot to unpack here. Um, Indeed. Okay, so right off the bat, a lot of leftists were very frustrated by AOC's response. Even some people who were initially sympathetic to her, they didn't like the tone of the protesters, they didn't like the way they shouted her down, have been turned off over the course of the following couple of days for the following reasons. One is, I think, really aggressively mischaracterizing what the protesters were asking for. She says that it's not anti-war to support uh, Putin's invasion or whatever the language was. Obviously, they weren't standing there saying, we want to support Putin's right. invasion. Right. What they were questioning was why AOC has voted uncritically without any commentary, without any push for peace negotiation or peace talks. The billions of dollars in funding to Ukraine, military aid to Ukraine, no scrutiny about where the money is going, where the weapons are going, any of those kinds of things. And they're saying that doing that in effect is leading to war, given that the State Department has said very clearly that its goal is to do basically regime change uh, and to quote unquote weaken Russia, right? So that's the critique. Deal and to continue offering on, support until whatever it takes, whatever as long it as it takes. takes. Yes. Whatever it takes. So. AOC is not willing to engage in the substance of the argument. Moreover, she does this thing where she says, because they're from this uh, LaRouche group, which apparently is not a left group, and I have certainly no friendly feelings or affinity for, that means you you can ignore the underlying substance of their argument, which I also think is not fair. Lyndon LaRouche and his accolades are genuine. 
genuinely weird people, mm -hmm. um, uh, sort of conspiracy type kooks that kind of defy easy categorization. They are in some ways lefty. They are some ways right. I think they like mostly drawing Hitler mustaches on people. Um, hmm. I, I think I, I remember their flyers from campus. You don't? Did you have? No. You didn't have any? We, at the, the University of Michigan, we had there be a couple LaRoche people handing out flyers, and because uh, I remember it was it was like a Barack Obama. And George Bush with Hitler mustaches. I'm pretty sure it was the LaRoche people. They're, they were genuinely weird. So, so this is the underlying yeah. question. Both but activists, sometimes kooky activists show up and ask you questions. That doesn't mean they're wrong about everything. Well, right. So the, the fact of them being LaRoche and the fact that they also alluded to Tulsi Gabbard in their confrontation have both been facts used to undermine their message. And so I had this conversation with folks on my call-in show last night about how much the messenger really matters in these cases. I made the case on this show, if Marjorie Taylor Greene is right about getting rid of the FBI, we can take that part and yeah. reject the rest of Marjorie Taylor Greene. If these protesters are right about criticizing AOC's stance on the Ukraine-Russia uh, conflict, I say we take that and throw it away. Right. And if Tulsi Gabbard has managed, despite, I think, the legitimate hypocrisy of her stumping for a pro-war candidate, um, uh, is happens to be right on the war in Ukraine, I think that we can say that too at the same time that we criticize her hypocrisy in this other area. But AOC, at the end of the day, has shown a complete and total unwillingness to engage in the substance of any of this. Yeah, I think that's right. What I don't like about Tulsi Gabbard, I mean, obviously she can do whatever she wants. She's not going to listen to me. Uh, and I have, I have said that I think it makes sense. The statements she's made about why she's leaving the Democratic Party when she's emphasizing the foreign policy aspect of it, really do make sense because we are in the midst of seeing a, a Republicans, uh, especially in, in government, somewhat more aligned around the concept of being against foreign interventionism than, frankly, than the Democratic Party. These are not massive differences because both parties are very bad on these issues. But you're getting where, like, the Democrats are down here and the Republicans are here. Yeah, the bar is on the floor. This is, yeah. this is what I said yeah. on the podcast last week. The bar is on the floor. If you are made uncomfortable by the fact by someone who you think does yeah. not have true anti-war bona fides being heralded as the best person, or a party even, that does yeah. not really have anti-war bona fides being heralded as the best that we have in this country, the solution to that is being better. Right. Just get to the left of them. So Tulsi herself is someone I hold in high esteem because she, she has made this a significant part of her public persona and her advocacy mm -hmm. is the foreign policy views that I agree with. When she's endorsing people like Carrie Lake and uh, Don uh, Bolduc, mm -hmm. um, and, and she's saying it's because they're opposed to the to the warmongering and the my, my issue with that though is uh, Carrie Lake. Let's just do Carrie Lake. She's she's running for governor of Arizona. She is not going to be in a position to make foreign policy related policy decisions, and I don't think she is primarily identifying herself or defining herself with a foreign policy that I agree with. Now yeah. she might. If she, to the extent she's talked about Ukraine or other things, she might have been saying things I agree with. Mm -hmm. So that's good. But unlike a Tulsi type person, I don't like she's not she's not making that her whole thing. Right. So then I think it risks actually sapping some of the strength of a message Tulsi would be offering yes. to endorse a Carrie Lake, Lake type person because what most people know Carrie Lake for and what she's certainly leaning into the most is a really, really hardcore um, love, over-the-top worship of Trump and of, of claims about the election that are not true. Mm -hmm. and, and, and to be clear, like, I think you, could, you can say, it is reasonable to say that, well, this person... Just because they have bad views on this issue, they might still be better than the alternative. But then I would want them to really be leaning into the views I like. And 
a Kerry Lake right. is mostly leaning into views that are just kind of again Trump fanboy stuff yeah, and, that is and, not healthy for and, the party and, and is worse, not Bull, Bulldog, who is a, a, a senator who right. you know who is someone who is in the congressional position to actually vote in these kinds of things has a bad voting record who is someone who has consistently been pro-war and I think what is happening is that because of all the focus on Ukraine and because of this more recent pivot that conservatives mm -hmm. have had into being like the anti-war party have been able to wave this flag and say look at what I said on Ukraine I must be good on, a, on these broader issues when they're not and even Tulsi Gabbard has come under scrutiny for being being supportive of the drone wars and other kinds of wars that are interventionist projects as well. She just is against regime change wars. And again, she should be lauded for her opposition to those kinds of conflicts. But that is a much narrower claim than being an anti-war candidate. And I think people on the right, or sorry, people on the left are right to point that out, even though they also deserve criticism for managing to lose high ground to Tulsi despite her flaws. One other point I did want to mention before we get out of this segment is that AOC also really lost credibility by doubling down on this point that she had made on Twitter in response to Mehdi Hassan, Mehdi had tweeted, these protesters are ridiculous, this is absurd. AOC followed up saying even worse, they were shouting over a deaf constituent. The idea of being that, you know, they had disrespect for someone with a disability and that oh these people were completely craven. Turns out that she was reading emails that had been submitted and reviewed in advance. So there was not a deaf person there in the room that was getting shouted down. She was reading an email just like she was reading an email from, from everybody else. Um, and so she, people were making this claim that she's now weaponizing disability in order to defend herself. And in this post now, this Instagram post, she follows up on that, on that claim saying, for example, in the video, they cut out the part where they waited to yell until a deaf constituent was trying to ask a question. So it would look like everyone was mad at their words instead of the fact that they were harming a person with a disability. It, it seems incredible wow. that she would wow. double down on that after longer videotape after the protester himself, uh, Jose Vega, has been interviewed on other platforms explaining what had happened. That's pretty no bad. one's disputed that there was no deaf person in the room, even people who were defending AOC in the first instance. So this is why people, even people who defended her immediately after the fact have had an evolution over the weekend. Um, and AOC keeps putting her foot in it. If she doesn't want to be the focus of these kind of attacks, and I think she gets a lot of undue unfair attacks as well, she needs to be a little bit more circumspect about her uh, Posting. Yeah. You know, there was an interesting story in uh, a magazine feature in the New Republic that I was reading yesterday. Uh, it's, it's called, I just pulled it up, The Neocons Are Losing, Why Aren't We Happy? Mm -hmm. And it's aimed at a kind of liberal Democrat and mm -hmm. is saying, you know, this is, if you could flash back to, you know, 2005 you, and, and assure liberal Democrats that, oh, this is what the Republican Party is going to look like on foreign policy mm -hmm. 17 years from now, they mm -hmm. would be like, oh, the sooner the better, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And now, that, but that's not what you hear from liberal they're, they're Democrats mad, now. They're mad, because now it's calling their bluff. Yeah. And this is, this is so much of what the Be conversation what on the left has been about. The criticism of the squatters, the criticism, you, you have to create tensions in politics that expose when people really mean it and when they're just talking. And that should exist on the right as well. People like Tulsi, Carrie, like whoever it is, need to be challenged on whether or not they actually are going to fight for the things that they say they care about or whether it's all just online bluster mm -hmm. about wokeness, blah, blah, blah. And that's why people have to put forward legislation. You have to put forward votes. You have to see if people are actually going to pull the trigger on stuff that's going to help the American people. And the Democratic Party has been very aggressively oppositional to leftists who have wanted that to happen, oppositional to force the vote, oppositional to the idea of forcing a vote on the fight for 15, which is an overwhelmingly popular policy. And we're not even seeing that kind of agitation at all on the right, because I would argue that the more uh, active parts of the far right movement are so invested in the kind of uh, 
woke uh, cultural politics that there is very little in the way of legislative hooks ap apart from a couple of bans or efforts to ban mm -hmm. trans mm -hmm. youths from soccer leagues and things they're like that. They're not uh, book bans, stuff like that. They're not a, a lot of great, obvious legislative remedies to the things that most animate conservatives. This has been right. a And I think that's by design. Problem. That's by design. They can promise a lot of stuff that they don't have to deliver on because it's not real. Just yeah. like Democrats spend a lot of time talking about how we're going to cure racism when there's no policy for that either. Yeah. No, it's fair enough. Yeah. All right, more rising right after this. Stay with us. On Sunday, the United States sent armored vehicles to Haiti under the guise of defending the country against gangs who threatened to oust Prime Minister Ariel Henry. Last month, Henry announced an end to fuel subsidies, causing shortages and soaring prices. This prompted an explosion of anti-government protests across the country. Adding to the already existing unrest caused by Henri's, quote, illegitimate tenure as prime minister, Henri was never elected or formally confirmed by the legislature and has continued to postpone new elections. Joining us now to discuss is English language editor at AD Liberté, Kim Ives. Welcome, Kim Ives. Thank you, Robbie. Great to see you again. So give us an update on, you know, what the situation is like in Haiti right now. Well, it's very critical, very bad, and this really is the result of three decades of U.S. meddling in Haiti. And they're trying to do it again through the Security Council. They're trying to send another force, that will be the fourth in a century, into Haiti to um, intervene, invade militarily, and the Haitians don't want it. They're in the streets in Haiti. They're in the streets here in New York. Uh, saying no to foreign military intervention. But um, the UN has a problem, or I should say the US has a problem, because the UN, uh, now that we're in a multipolar world since February 2022, uh, it's not so easy to get the rubber stamp of a UN force. So they're trying all these maneuvers to make it a bilateral arrangement that the UN will sort of bless and uh, this falls right in line with the new Global Fragility Act that the U.S. Uh, passed in 2019 with total bipartisan support, uh, which essentially establishes a bilateral relationship and they wed USAID, the humanitarian arm of the State Department, with the Pentagon. So here we have soldiers coming in with sacks of rice, gift from the American people, but essentially it's to put down uh, people who are threatening U.S. power in Haiti. Has there been any, uh, sorry to cut you off, has there been any progress on, Ariel Henry is, is believed, right, to have been involved with the assassination of, of the former leader of Haiti, uh, Jovenel Moïse. Has there been any updates in that investigation? Is it more conclusive now, one way or the other? No, uh, no updates, and it's pretty patent that he was involved. He made two calls to uh, the guy who ordered the triggerman to shoot uh, Jovenel Moise, uh, from what we know, and uh, he claimed he doesn't remember the calls, but, you know, the phone records are right there. Uh, and the U.S. involved, I mean, the FBI spent two to three months down there investigating, going through everything. We haven't heard a peep from them. Uh, one of the uh, the believed trigger man, a guy called uh, Antonio Palacios Palacios, Colombian mercenary, uh, is on trial in Miami, and the U.S. has sealed his uh, <laughs> evidence or what he has to say from his uh, defense. Uh, this is, uh, as one 
U.S. officials said, telegraphing CIA involvement. So it's looking more and more like the U.S. had a hand in this. So can you give us some background about what investment the United States has in ousting Moise and maintaining the current president with this now military aid that they're trying to get into the country? What's, what's the goal well, here? Mm -hmm. Well, Moise was starting to have second thoughts, it's appeared. He was basically browbeaten by uh, Donald Trump to uh, fall in behind the U.S. campaign against Venezuela, endorse Juan Guaido, say Maduro was illegitimate. And uh, he did that. He was the hood ornament on the uh, U.S. tank against uh, Venezuela for, for a while. But he started to see that the U.S. wasn't really giving him the backup that he needed, and he was entertaining uh, reopening relations with Maduro. And at the same time, a month before his assassination, he received the Russian ambassador and apparently took a trip to Turkey just a couple of weeks before he was killed uh, and uh, was, according to sources who are pretty reliable, uh, was trying to find a line to Putin. So uh, it looks like the U.S. started to say this guy's uh, become a liability and uh, they, they had to ditch him. Hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating that, I mean, I remember covering that story when it happened and that there seemed to be very little appetite in the way of follow-up or accountability here. We've been talking a lot um, on this show and elsewhere about kind of the lack of left response to the um, kind of push for regime change in Russia and how a lot of people who are positioning themselves as anti-war in this moment are on the right. And it is curious to see the relative amount of silence uh, about what's going on in, in Haiti. Can you tell us a little bit about the tenor of the objections and the protests that have been happening both here and in Haiti? I see them being framed uh, in many places as a kind of um, gang activity as opposed to political protest. What's the truth there? Well, yesterday, uh, the U.S. ambassador in the U.N. put all the blame on uh, a so-called gang, an armed neighborhood federation is what we call it, uh, the G9. They're saying, oh, they're the ones choking. Uh, I have uh, Greenfield's exact quote here. Uh, Jimmy Cherizier, known as Barbecue, he is directly responsible for the fuel shortage that is crippling the country. Well, that's just plain false. Yes, they put up a barricade like all Port-au-Prince has put up barricades. It's totally specious to say that the G9's barricade is uh, blocking the whole country. No, all of Port-au-Prince, in fact, most of Haiti has barricades all over the place. So the fuel truck might get a block out of the gate, but uh, it's going to hit another barricade. So the people are standing up because who is choking Haiti? The International Monetary oh, Fund. So. They're the ones dictating that the uh, fuel prices be raised and the Haitian people are saying no. Hmm. Well, Kim Ives, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. We'll have more rising right after this. Boston University researchers reportedly developed a more lethal strain of the COVID virus. Uh, that was according to New York Post and had many people wondering, why are they doing that? Please stop. Don't do it. Uh, I w had that reaction. I was very upset about this. Uh, so I looked through the New York Post article and uh, I realized that 
so this was just based on um, uh, there was an underlying article from the Boston Herald, mm -hmm. um, which was behind a paywall. So I did. I signed. I was determined to read this to see if this was true. So I signed up for a Boston Herald. Uh, I paid like a dollar for six months. It's not. <laughs> no, don't be crying. I'll be. Uh, I'll be starving because of the uh, Boston Herald budget. I have to set aside. Drop for. your cash app, Robbie. <laughs> <laughs> the people want to support you in this intrepid journalism. So I did some actual journalism. Looked at the Boston Herald story and it turned. Turns out that this headline is total BS. Okay, um, what's going on? So, they took they actually made a strain of the virus that is less dangerous. Okay. Uh, now this. To be clear, this still could be bad, and I, I don't like all this tinkering with the virus being done anyway. What they did was take the Omicron strain mm -hmm. and remove the spike protein mm -hmm. and attach that the Omicron spike to the original COVID strain mm -hmm. and then tried it on mice. These mice all got killed by the original strain. Mm -hmm. Then when you, well, you didn't re bring the mice back to life. You got different mice. Mm -hmm. Tried out <laughs> Omicron spike plus original. That only killed 80% of the mice. So I think the effort was to demonstrate whether the spike protein is actually the scary thing or whether there's something else. This research would suggest the spike protein wasn't actually making it more deadly. It was more deadly before mm -hmm. for the, for mice, you know, whatever that means. Um, so anyway, it, the headline is just false. They did not make a strain that was more deadly. They did make a different strain. And I was looking at um, Alina Chen is someone we've had on the show before. Mm -hmm. um, she uh, has, has a lot of expert things to say about lab leak and gain of function, et cetera. And she was like, yeah, you know, it's important to read the underlying thing because this was totally taken out of context. She said, I'm still not super comfortable with the idea of them doing this kind of research anyway um, mm -hmm. because you know, you know what if it spills out what if mm -hmm. you know you don't exactly know how, how you know how it might mutate further or something like that mm -hmm. um, but uh, I thought it was worth I wanted to talk about it since I bothered to look a little closer at it. I honestly think the I fact mean, that it was behind a paywall is what per, is what enables caused this. this. Yeah. yeah so what how did and I mean you read both of these articles how do you think uh, the post got to uh, this crazy, you know, Franken virus, run, be afraid, it's Halloween. How do you think they got there from the initial post? Yeah, I think they just didn't read the initial post very carefully at all. Is this something that you see happening with some regularity in this subject area in particular? I don't know if it's more prevalent in this subject matter than others, but uh, yeah, you know, lazy... Um, re, uh, uh, um, you know, just re-upping someone else's post or just adding very little, um, you know, this is what passes for journalism a lot of the time. Now, I, and I'm, I'm not immune to it. I've done it before, yeah. where uh, where you you don't you're not really chasing down your old, old uh, your own leads necessarily. You see an article that you think is interesting, and maybe you add a little bit of comment commentary to it, and then you've posted your own version. Again, I do this. Everyone yeah. does this. I mean, back back in the day when I was in high school, I did an internship at Science Magazine because I thought I wanted to be a science journalist. And that is really the issue with a lot of science journalism is that somebody has to translate what's happening in these thick, dense research papers to the public, and a lot is often lost in the process, even under the best faith conditions. And I'm not sure that what we're looking at here in the post is a good, is a good faith condition. But sometimes we just don't have time. I mean, you and yeah. I talk about you know, eight or 10 stories a day. Sure. We only have so much time to look at them very closely. Often we select for stories we feel like we already know pretty well yeah. or that we have interest in. They're easier to talk about. But every now and then we have to tackle something that yeah. we don't know much about, but it's just very important. Yeah. I'm sure we get things wrong on occasion. On very, on very rare occasions. Very rare occasions. In other COVID news, U.S. health officials are already cautioning that the country could face a surge in COVID this winter. 
The new warning comes as the number of cases in Europe have trended upward late in the summer. Data from the European Center for Disease Prevention and Control shows the seven-day average is about 230,000 cases per day, while the seven-day average here in the U.S. is around 38,000. COVID is trending downward nationwide. Experts say that could change as cooler temperatures move in. So we would be expected probably to see some increases in at least um, certain parts of the country. Uh, the, you know, the trajectory for the last several years, right, has been spikes in very in warmer parts of the country, more southern parts of the country during the summer mm -hmm. when people are more indoors because it's so hot there. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, which, which you know, prompted a lot of, every time, because that happened first every time and prompted a lot of denunciation from the mainstream media for those states' oh, policies. State policies. And then, yeah. uh, and then as the temp, the, the, uh, the, regional the weather effects shifts and then all the all the the cooler the colder blue states go through the exact same thing regard not exactly yeah. the same but similar trajectories to, you know even though their policies are, are different and there's no yeah. condemnation of them well but. it'll be interesting to see what happens this time around because we no longer have the ability to call up uh the biden administration and get our free tests um you can I call think... me up i've got a whole stockpile <laughs> Well, not having them as readily on hand, um, I think, will affect people. I mean, even if you can afford to get them, I can feel it in myself. Like, you know, it was easy for me to hop on the Internet and press the button and have the test delivered. Me really? getting up and going. Yeah, it was, you know, I. I it's easier I, than going to CVS. I can't tell you the last time I stepped foot in a CVS. It's been really? at least a couple of weeks. Yeah. Yeah, I, I go to CVS like multiple times a, a day. OK, <laughs> all, all I'm saying is, I mean, I, I do think it's going to how much people know one, that they have COVID is going to be affected yeah. by how much people are testing, which is going to be affected by how much people are required to test in a professional setting or whether or not they have the test easily available at home. And that's not a value judgment about you know policies. That's just to say, I think that there's going to be some real effects on how we can even interpret how serious the spike is in the fall because of decisions that have been made at the top. And I've, I've been you know pretty consistent about really wishing that some of the non-mandate related interventions were carried through. And I'm concerned that people are now being left to their own devices and given very little support from the government, whether it's in the form of better ventilation for people going back indoors. Uh, the outdoor dining is going to move back indoors in its entirety without having this kind of bifurcated where we get to live in in the summer and warmer months. And, you know, it's any, any man's guess what's going to happen. I mean, last, last year in, uh, in I, I think it wasn't just fall, but really, you know, December and um, January, most December here in D.C. was when absolutely everyone I knew got it. It felt like the entire city contracted it. Um, now, that would suggest perhaps places that were very hit hard by Omicron, maybe they have some kind of residual immunity, although I, I think now we, we, you know, we've heard from people who've gotten Omicron and then have gotten it again fairly quickly afterward. Yep. And so a year later, maybe that's not doing much. And the compounding effects, I think just as people are concerned about what the compounding effects of getting boosters for the rest of your life are, doctors have been very clear about the compounding effects of getting COVID multiple times. Um, and I think you're going to see more cases of long COVID and some of these other things that the government is also not at all prepared to deal with. We're concerned about inflation and people are talking about quiet quitting and how that's driving this crisis. But some other folks have pushed back and said that part of what's going on here is a lot of long-term disability that is not being registered in the way that it should be registered. So mm. it'll be interesting to see. Yeah. I've already, by the way, heard from several people who've said, uh, I feel I feel like uh, it's a little tickle in the back of my throat, but mm, I don't have any tests. I'm not going to test. Like, there's no point. 
Yeah, people are. It, it is just people are treating it. More people I know are treating it just like any other illness, and uh, especially because the consequences for their employment for testing and testing positive, not having you know, not having paid leave, not being able to take the time off. People, it's not worth the risk for them, which is it's just setting up some really perverse incentives. So, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. That's it for today. Uh, but be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any video. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. You can check us out on Roku, on Vizio, and on Plex TV. And we will both be back here tomorrow and hope you will be as well. Goodbye. See ya.